as the unspeakable tragedy of the murder of George Floyd woken us all up to how divided we are and can't continue that way. Perhaps the time has come again for the idea of one world. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. As with the lead-up to what became the First World War, fierce nationalism is on the rise in many places in the world. Despite the fact that COVID does not respect a country's borders, nor does climate change or pollution, there are forces in America, Europe, and Asia digging in, embracing racist and, by definition, violent nationalism. Yet, sometimes old ideas are new again. For example, the world in the 1930s became significantly smaller because of air travel and radio. The unimaginable horror of the First World War without regard to the nations from which the millions of victims came also had an impact on the desire for something better than militaristic, incredibly destructive nationalism. There had to be a better way. The initial attempt at avoiding nationalist wars emerged from the Great War. It was the League of Nations, but the U.S. Senate rejected American membership or participation. After the Second World War, a new version came into being with the support of Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt. And ever since then, what used to be the far right on the fringe of American politics, but is now the Republican Party, has either been dubious or expressed outright hostility to the United Nations. The old fantasy of American exceptionalism is still embraced today by leaders of both political parties. Yet something is happening across the world. Things like the universal horror at the murder of George Floyd united the world in righteous outrage. The rage against racism brought people together, and the effects of climate change and the pandemic are also forcing us to see that we are indeed one world. And we better start acting as one. As history shows, there are always avatars, people of vision, leaders who are ahead of their time. In this case, it was Wendell Wilkie. If that name sounds a little familiar, it's because he was the sixth choice of the Republican Party, but he did run against uh, FDR in 1940 for president. Obviously, Roosevelt won big. But as the war was ending, Wilkie and Roosevelt became allies, working together as friends. In, in fact, they talked about together forming a new liberal party. But Wilkie died in 1944 before that could come to fruition. So what does this have to do with today? Well, with so much challenge and opportunity making us truly one world, perhaps we can pick up on Wilkie's still worthy vision. It may be more relevant today than ever. Our guest is Samuel Zip, who has a new book out called The Idealist, Wendell Wilkie's Wartime Quest to Build One World. And the topic for our discussion today is, has the one world ideas time come again? 
Samuel Zip Zip is a writer and historian, the author of The Idealist, Wendell Wilkie's Wartime Quest to Build One World. He's Associate Professor of American Studies and Urban Studies at Brown University. His research and teaching investigate the cultural and urban history of the United States in the 20th century. Sandy Zip, thanks so much for being with us today on Keeping Democracy Alive. And Wendell Wilkie ran for president 80 years ago. A lot's changed, but much has not. What about this moment in history sparked you to write this book? Thank you, Bert, so much for having me today. I'm pleased to be with you. I, um, I've always thought that the, the, the moment of World War II is one of these great watershed moments in American history. Right? We tend to remember World War II as a great triumph, a great um, a great moment of uh, American ascendance onto the world stage, a great um, uh, moment of American um, sort of triumph, right, where, where, where America really defined itself, right, as the, as the world's indispensable nation. And we often think of the World War II as the good war, an uncomplicated war, particularly in, in context or in comparison to the wars that have come since and the wars that many of us have known or lived through from Iraq to Vietnam and so on before the before the, the um, Interventions of Central America in the 1980s, things like that, which uh, the United States, many Americans are not proud of. Right. Um, but I think the thing about World War II that's really fascinating is the way that it's this moment where the United States could have become a different kind of place, a place that was um, not the great uh, empire of the late 20th century, but a very different, more um, democratically inclined and more multilateralist kind of place. And World War II is the watershed for this moment, the, the moment where things could have broken one way or another. And it was my decision to write the book largely because I think Wendell Wilkie is an incredible figure in which to understand the um, potential uh, sort of potential ways that this watershed could have could have flowed down one stream mm-hmm. or flowed down another. Right? He's a in some sense uh, to switch the metaphor a little bit, a road not taken. But in a lot of ways, he predicts a lot of the things, a lot of the dilemmas that have returned uh, to be quite powerful and pungent for us today, you know, in a time after the Cold War, a time of climate change, a time of global pandemic. So Wilkie's story, in particular, is the story of his trip around the world in 1942 uh-huh. and, and his, uh, his, his bestseller, One World, are really the things that drew this to me. And the thing that I wanted to recall for readers um, beyond the story of his 1940 uh, election contest with FDR, which, as you say, is, is how many people remember Wilkie. Right. The, the author, James Baldwin, is enjoying renewed interest these days as well. And in, in 1963, as the Cold War defined America's being in the world rather narrowly, Baldwin expressed his concern about this chosen self-blindedness when it comes to our position in the world and our potential that, that you mentioned that uh, Wilkie talked about as well. Talk about that, please. Yeah, I, I was um, interested to do a little uh, comparison between Baldwin and Wilkie and something that I, I wrote recently for History News Network because um, it struck me that while they have somewhat different politics, and particularly by the, the mid-1960s when Baldwin made those comments about the United States being a, a provincial place. He said, um, America is not the world, he said, right? During, uh, he was particularly responding to the sense that the United States had during the Cold War of being um, a place that was both uh, a self-proclaimed leader of the free world, but on the other hand, quite content to see itself as unconnected from the demands of people across the world, particularly those who were 
um, who were campaigning against European and American empire in those years, both European uh, decolonization, which was underway in those years, and the, the sort of more uh, sort of more defer- diffuse um, power of American military, economic, and cultural empire, which was sometimes welcomed in some parts of the world and sometimes contested. And, um, you know, Baldwin felt himself to be uh, linking the problem of American racism to those decolonizing and world-changing impulses that were going on all over the world, and that many Americans just didn't really see that, didn't really understand it, were content to see themselves as as um, virtuous actors on the world stage while not seeing the way they <laughs> propped up various unfortunate dictators across the world and that sort of thing. And, and you know, that, I, I wanted to make that comparison because I think that's in some sense what Wilkie was himself trying to get Americans to understand 20 years before during World War II with his trip and his book. He wanted them to understand the linked fates of decolonization that he saw coming and that so many people he met around the world showed him and told him was coming and of American racism at home, which many of his allies in the African-American Civil Rights Movement um, pushed him to see in those years. Um, so while Wilkie was much more of a conventional liberal than James Baldwin, not to, as far to the left as Baldwin, mm-hmm. he, um, he still raised those stakes for Americans, um, and he still showed, asked Americans not to, uh, to uh, be content with a certain kind of provincialism, and Baldwin echoed that later, and I think we're again facing that dilemma again today. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It's good to have people who have the vision ahead of their times. It's a little rough on those people, I, I say for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's hard yeah. It's hard to be ahead of your time. The Trump era struck me as the antithesis of one world thinking. I mean, but it didn't come out of nowhere. I mean, it was there already. His raging bellicosity was loved by his angry, white supremacist, ultra-nationalist based. We, I'm, I'm thrilled we finally booted him from power. But as you say, blinkered self-assurance can underpin liberal internationalism and America first nationalism alike. What do you mean by that? Well, I want us to think about the ways that the United States has often across its history, and particularly since World War II, um, whoever was in power um, with uh, accepted for itself or claimed for itself a role as the world's um, organizer, the, the, the power that is indispensable and necessary uh, for organizing and putting the world together according to American ideals, uh, liberal individualism, uh, free market capitalism, right? And these are, whether whatever we think of these visions and these ideals, right, we may have arguments about them, we may accept some, some parts mm-hmm. of them as being um, powerful and useful for our, our worlds, right? Both liberals and America First nationalists um, have, since World War II, um, accepted the idea that the United States uh, is is the necessary world ordering force, right? That it's indispensable for shaping the United States. That it's shaped the Cold War, it shaped the war on terror. And we're now at this moment, just like we were during World War II, where I think a lot of that is up to grabs. I think um, it's the, the underpinnings to that self assurance have started to fall away, have started to crumble. And we need new models for thinking through how the United States might sort itself out vis-a-vis the world. Obviously, Trump's um, anti-globalism, right, his campaign, he and Steve Bannon's campaign against globalism, has captured the captured the imaginations of, of, of thousands, if not millions of people, both in the United States and around the world. We wouldn't have had uh, the uh, ugly and, and, and terrifying events of January 6th, of this year at the U.S. Capitol without that. 
and and we and those those forces in our politics and in our culture are going to remain strong. But I think, as you suggest, you suggested too, in your in some of what you said in your opening, right? There's something else at work in the world today, right now, about a need to actually confront the true interconnected and interdependent state of our world, both in our nation and at the world at large. And I think Wilkie is a really good figure for recalling to us that we had a chance to embrace that once during World War II, and that dilemma is before us again. Yeah, interesting. If it doesn't get resolved, uh, it it continues and goes on. And, you know, it's interesting that, as you point out, in many ways, Americans, quote, embrace the benefits of globalization, cheap goods and easy travel, but have shown far more ambivalence toward its oft-neglected responsibilities, end of quote. What are those responsibilities to which we choose to blind ourselves? And how might it be beneficial for us to recognize and act on these responsibilities? What would that look like? Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, I'm a historian, and so I'm interested in, in, in the dilemmas the past sets for us, as I've said. Um, but, you know, I, I think that basically it would, it would ask the United States to, to think about um, and to order, uh, organize itself to, to act in concert with, with, with um, the rest of the uh, nations around the globe. To, uh, to answer shared problems. So now, there are ways that the United States is doing that, and there are ways that the Biden, new incoming Biden administration has put, uh, put questions like that back on the table around climate change, um, most promisingly, I think, around trade, um, around trying to uh, rebalance trade so that it benefits mm. um, both people abroad and actually Americans, which is hopefully a situation that might do something to answer the claims of the Trump Trumpist nationalist right against globalization, and which they've had a great point, which is that globalization has has had a deleterious effect uh, on the American working class. It has hollowed out and contributed to the great inequality that has um, plagued the United States for the last twenty to thirty years. And, you know, it's possible that Biden has been pushed to the left to some extent by the Sanders and Warren constituencies. Hopefully we'll be looking to do something about this. Um, and, you know, I'm not a policymaker, so I'll leave it to them to make um, to make uh, plans for that and that we can all hopefully benefit from and, and learn to work with. And hopefully that we can knit some of that back together. But I, I think that what we need to think about is the way that um, both in the, at the national level and at the international level, we need to think about ways to um, tie ourselves back to a more interdependent way, a way of seeing ourselves as, as related to others around us rather than standing on the fact of our own sovereignty as the um, world-defining force um, that, has so, that has led, to, I think, to so many oh. uh, tragedies across the, the Cold War and the War on Terror. Oh, so, my goodness. You know, it's yeah. interesting. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll just say one more thing about that, which is that Wilkie had this really great piece, and you can read about it in my book, which is that he wrote um, for a journal at the end of the, at near the, uh, near, just before he died, actually, in late 1944, he was trying very hard to convince the United States to accept a more democratic form for the United Nations than that that had been proposed by, by Franklin Roosevelt. And um, what he said was, look, we all accept rules in our lives. We all accept rules that suggest that we are interdependent, right? And the, the big example he gave was traffic lights, traffic signals right? uh-huh. in, in cities. We need them, and we all mostly accept that we need them, because otherwise we would have chaos. Our independence, he said, is preserved by um, understanding um, 
by understanding the, those rules, and that we actually promote our own independence by accepting that interdependence and having a set of rules that um, that doesn't allow us to uh, descend into a kind of um, pulled a pulled apart, isolated chaos that would would undermine our own abilities to to actually exert our freedom and independence in the first place, right? So we would say these are interlinked and we have to understand them. I think we need to see that at the global level again, um, even though I am sometimes doubtful about the prospects for that. And, uh, and I recognize that many of our, our friends on the right for, uh, have a point when they say that, when they say that, um, that some of these things are unworkable and lead to un- unfortunate compromises. Um, but unfortunate compromises may be the name of the game in the world that we live in these days. And it's interesting the the you know nationalism and and the trade policies that we've had so far uh, have ended up making so that corporations. Of course, they'll ship jobs overseas where there aren't the same labor protections, not the same worker protections, not the same environmental regulations. So that, as you say, hollows out our workforce and hurts us as well. And of course, we don't, it's, it's perhaps too complicated to see that. I don't know. People... People like things simple, but it's it's rarely simple. And of course, as H.L. Mencken right. said, uh, to every complex problem, there's a simple solution, and it's wrong. For those who may have just tuned in, Burke <laughs> Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about uh, Wendell Wilkie's wartime quest to build one world. And the question uh, to the author of the book of that title is, has the one world idea's time come again? And I'm starting to think, yeah, maybe it has. And you express concern about a return to the triumphalist provincialism of the liberal world order. Have centrist Democrats, who call themselves centrists, as well as Republicans, relied on the same world vision of us as the essential organizers of the world because the rest of the world can't do it themselves? Uh, And I wonder what, what that looks like. And it strikes me, you know, and I, I heard uh, some of uh, what, what uh, Secretary of State uh, Blinken had to say, that basically we are that, that we are the organizing force, that the, the world would not be organized uh, without us, that they couldn't organize uh, themselves. Um, but I wonder, it sounds sort of like a ruling elite from centuries ago that thought they were indispensable. How how similar might it be to that old standard of a ruling elite, uh, you know, being necessary to control the world? You know, I think that it's funny, right? American foreign policy and American sort of foreign political economy um, are move on a sort of slightly different track, right? Uh, slightly different tracks from each other, although they are they're linked, right? And I think Blinken is a good example of this. I think. Even you know what I said before is like we're 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 at a time of incredible um, upheaval and crisis and where where anything is possible and I think Blinken is probably at this point trying to figure out how he sorts himself out uh, relative to this right he's a he's a, a fairly um, middle of the road liberal um, multilateralist who is also uh, what we might call a neoliberal, right? He believes in the power of markets, but he believes in the power of the United States, as he said, to organize the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that 
given the fact that those all both of those things have to some extent run aground these days, <laughs> um, or are hard to um, are hard to reassert exactly on those terms. I think what's happening is in the Biden administration and with Secretary of State Blinken, they're trying to figure out. Um, it seems to me, I mean, I, I don't know, but it does seem to me that they're trying to figure out how to recalibrate their thinking for a changed political landscape in which um, the left has, has, a, has a greater uh, voice than it ever has in the past, yes. um, and in which the, the right obviously has um, great energy. And I think they're trying to strike the right balance uh-huh. between um, between a kind of, uh, between the nationalist populism that would satisfy the right and the sort of market-friendly policies that will satisfy their base in corporations and in um, financial banks and in the, the various international institutions. So I think what we need to figure out is a way to pressure um, those who are now running American political economy, foreign political economy and foreign policy to figure out how to make the most democratic choices, both for Americans and for people abroad, how to string together a new set of policies. And like I said, there's been some encouraging things, I think, especially on the trade front with um, with uh, with the trade representative Jared Bernstein's idea about new rules for the road and trade, uh-huh. um, which I think you know I'm not an expert on trade, but I found them quite interesting as really new ways to think about how to return some of the benefits of global trade to American workers and America, the American middle and working class, hmm. such that we can repair some of those breaches that have torn apart um, torn apart the, mm-hmm. the um, the American, the sort of American base, so to speak, it stretched us so thin um, in, in this world of inequality that, that Piketty and many others have described for us. And I think that, um, you know, if we can do some of that while at the same time addressing the long legacy of structural racism that we're all um, confronted with, especially this week as we watch the, 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 the trial of Derek, the murder trial of Derek Chauvin for, for killing George Floyd, I think that, you know, if we can find a way to, to square the Square the circle on that, which is always the difficult thing to bring together in American politics. It's the problem at the heart of our polity of race and the continuing uh, power of capitalism to create inequality. If this is this is the path forward, the hopeful path forward, but to to um, to something better. But I think it's tough, and I think that's where Loki wanted us to go um, uh, back in the 1940s, and you know it's, it's, it remains our challenge. And I wonder, you know, oftentimes. <laughs> probably all the time, really, the, the real policy, the the pressure that we don't see, but that is the real power, is the banks, the, the finance houses, the, uh, uh, you know, uh, World Bank yeah, and things sure. like that. I, I, I can't, and they, they have some degree of wisdom, I would think. And I wonder, I can't help but think that maybe they're seeing uh, that we need some sort of uh, different... Uh, policy and more acceptance of the developing world, and not just be you know building walls around ourselves. I, I wonder uh, yeah. where they are in all this yeah. uh, internationalism. Yeah, I, know, I don't know. World. Yeah, yeah, it's a great idea. It's a great question. I mean, I think I feel like they, you know, I, I think there's been a change. You know, many of those institutions are seeing that the sort of one size fits all debt driven development model no longer works, yeah. and has, as you know, has really run aground itself. Um, but I'm, I'm less familiar with where that all went. I mean, this is where that's all going. It's interesting, though, to think about this historically in a certain way, because yes. Wilkie's a kind of complicated figure in all this, because mm-hmm. Wilkie actually comes to public prominence as a very confident uh, capitalist and as a capitalist who is uh, comes to public 
uh, prominent opposing the New Deal, opposing Roosevelt's New Deal. Yeah. He's a person who was a, a lifelong Democrat, but sort of became a lawyer as a young man and then began to do a bunch of work for the utility industry, of all things, which was mm-hmm. one of the greatest uh, sort of combinations of economic power in the early uh-huh. 20th century as it, as it uh, worked to connect um, connect up the United States but, uh, with electric power, of course. And he essentially worked with a lawyer for the banks that that, uh, that funded the holding companies that um, that, that backed the power was the so-called power trust in the early in the, in the 1920s and 30s. And so it was when when Roosevelt proposed the Tennessee Valley Authority right. um, to nationalize some of this power industry to try to to distribute power more equitably across rural America. That um, Wilkie uh, found his public role in, in in campaigning against this because he rightly knew that it would put his clients out of business, yeah. um, and this is what brought him to uh, the attention of a bunch of Republicans uh, who you know saw him as this sort of anti New Deal spokesman. Although he was one of the most moderate of the anti New Deal spokesmen because he was also an internationalist and someone that actually believed in labor, unlike any of his Republican allies. Yeah. So he switched parties to run. But he always um, was sort of struggling with this idea about what, what should be the power of capital, what should be the power of what he uh, started out calling and backing as free enterprise, but sort of just sort of move away from that figure and that ideal that was so became so associated with the Republican right in those years, um, even though he was never trusted by the, the New Dealers, right. um, particularly those on the left of the deal or those who backed Henry Wallace, his other internationalist rival uh, in these years. Uh-huh. Interesting. And I believe my dad yeah. voted for both of them. One, because Wilkie, <laughs> I believe, was was calling for the U.S. to actively support uh, Great Britain against the Nazis in 1940, sure. and Roosevelt wasn't there yeah. yet. So in yeah, 19- Roosevelt was being cagey in his way, as Roosevelt obviously awesome you know <laughs> oh yeah go out there and make me yeah. do it that's what he needed to do <laughs> and yeah. in 1943 the war was going full steam ahead and that's when wilkie's book one world was published and became a phenomenal bestseller apparently it surprised even him so that it sold so well tell us about that and what yeah. its appeal was and the mood in the world to which it connected and inspired yeah sure I think to understand Wilkie's book, you actually have to understand first the trip that he went on in 1942. This was late 1942. It's at a great turning point in the in the moment of the war, in the history of the war, right? At a moment when, um, and it actually arrives very early in this turning point before people can really see it happening, right? So the war essentially is hanging in the balance. Um, this is August, September, and October of 1942. And Wilkie undertakes this 49-day, 31,000-mile journey around the world to visit, essentially, the battlefronts. Um, he can't go to Europe because it's occupied, of course. Uh, but he goes to several countries in Africa, spends a lot of time in uh, a number of times in Egypt, visits the battlefront at Al Alamein. Then he flies to a series of points across the Middle East, to Turkey, to, to um, Beirut, to Jerusalem, to Baghdad, to Tehran, then to Moscow, where he visits the, um, the front Eastern Front outside of uh, about an hour uh, west, in that case, of Moscow. Um, and then he flies, uh, after a week and a half there, then he flies to China, and he spends two weeks in China, and he visits the, the front there. This trip is taken um, in, in concert with Roosevelt, right? They, um, yes. Because they have they are both uh, internationalists, and Roosevelt is thankful for the way that Wilkie did not um, attack. Wilkie essentially supported 
Roosevelt's efforts to um, allow the United States to enter the war without tearing the country, country apart in 1940, Wilkie backed Lend-Lease and things like that. Um, he supported this interest that Wilkie had in going around the world. Um, and, and Roosevelt hoped this trip would just be a kind of global PR tour for the idea that the United States was united to fight the war and that the U.S. war machine and industrial plant was ramping up. And Wilkie did all that, mm-hmm. of course, but he did a lot more. And he became a, a bit more of a wild card because he essentially mm-hmm. went there and began to listen to what people were saying. And what he brought home was this sense that there was this new form of nationalism, anti-colonial nationalism that was on the rise and that was shaping the world, and that the United States hadn't yet begun to see that. And that while um, we needed to support our allies, the British, we needed to realize that there were many, many people around the world who were angry at the British, at the French, at the Dutch, right, for their long histories of empire, and that if the United States was going to secure its sense that it could... um, it could be the actual new democratic hope of the world as represented in, in something like the, the Atlantic Charter, which claimed that, that the United States and Britain fought for self-determination across the world. If they were going to truly fulfill that. They needed to, um, they needed to, to figure out how to not become the heir to the British Empire. Mm. Um, and so this, this pressure on the on, uh, U.S. public opinion really um, to the extent that it does make itself felt in the United States, makes itself makes itself felt through Wilkie's trip, where he encounters all these people across in Egypt, in, in Lebanon, in uh, Lebanon and Syria, and in um, Jerusalem, uh, where he sees the beginnings of the the, the um, uh, Arab, uh, sorry, Palestinian Israel, uh, Israeli crisis. Although it's not Israel yet, it's still, still right. Palestine. Mm-hmm. Um, in in Baghdad, uh, where the where there's a strong anti-colonialist in Tehran. Right? And each of these places is in these sort of semi-colonial relationships, part of the mandate system left mm. over from the League of Nations. And I think one of the great things that people could, could, could get from my book is just the story of him traveling across the country, across the world during this war-torn time and meeting all these different people who rarely show up in our histories of World War II. Um, people who, you know, he meets, he does meet famous people like Hank Shek, and he, uh, he encounters um, Charles de Gaulle, and of course spends time with Stalin, and he spends time with General Montgomery. So those are interesting stories, people we all know from our World War II histories and our histories of this moment. But there's a host of other things that happened in the people, the anti-colonial nationalist journalists that he meets, the things he sees, the ways that he's struggling with his own idea of American, America's coming power and how it should be used. And that's what he brings back and puts into one world, into the book that he writes in early 1943. And it becomes this massive bestseller because it's one of the most Powerful accounts in a kind of um, popular fiction, nonfiction kind of voice, sort of magazine journalist mm-hmm. voice that tells the stories of all these people. He tells them in, in kind of uh, compelling, uh, in a compelling narrative, uh, a fun narrative. It's not a it's not a particularly deep book, but it's very capacious, we might say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a it's a book that that rouses Americans to think that they might have a more a, a more interdependent vision of the world. And it, it, it really expands Americans' understanding of what they're fighting for for mm. a brief moment there in 1942-43 and into 1944. And I think that's what gives it power. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of forgotten now as the sort of great, the great boom book of, of, of World War II, the book that everybody was reading. Yeah. Um, so I try to give a, a sort of a, a narrative of, uh, as, you know, not quite as fast-paced as Wilkie, but uh, you know, I'm still a historian. I still want you to understand the context, but I want you to understand this this moment that I think we've sort of forgotten as a as a, a sort of this 
moment of popular internationalism that could have uh, shifted the levers and gears of our our relations with the world in some different ways. Interesting. I I think I'm always an optimist, and and uh, from what you're saying, I, I'm getting the sense that maybe Americans really hoped, you know, just your average. American who read books hoped that we could have a different world, more internationalism, and believed, like I did when I was growing up, that we were, of course, anti-colonialist. We would never take the part, uh, you know, replace uh, formerly Great Britain as the the empire of the world. That there was hope for that, and I think that it says something about Americans that we have that hope, and that it sold exceedingly well. And I, yeah, I was yeah. re- reading your description. I guess Wilkie thought it might sell up to 150,000 copies. And how many did it really sell? We don't really know. Um, it, it was, Millions. It was a huge seller. We think something like 4 million copies Fantastic. eventually in all the different you know, different uh, yeah. aspects, different um, editions that it came out in. You know, it was in all kinds of editions. And it was in magazines. It was in, there was a newsprint edition and a hardcover edition. It came out in a bunch of foreign languages and sort of some dot editions behind the lines in various countries around World War II. So it was a kind of um, a great event of the war year mm. um, that, that I think had sort of been forgotten, but was, sure. was um, many people thought would never be forgotten when, when Loki died in 44. And yeah, I do think what you're saying is right. I mean, it, it there is a certain way that it captured a certain of American idealism about the sense that the United States could fulfill a vision of itself as the great democratic republic and still be um, a steward of the world's fortune. Mm. Um, I think that that was, you know, it captures a great dilemma about the United States, but we still worry, right? The sense of the United States is this exceptionalist nation oh, like, yes. that, that is the, the true home of liberty. On the other hand, it captures the sense that sometimes America feels that the world must be reshaped in its own image. Yeah. And I do think that actually Wilkie embodies this problem and this dilemma. He is, in some sense, a great avatar of American anti-imperialism, of mm-hmm. American racial, uh, democracy around racial um, racial interests. And he was trying to be more of an economic Democrat in some ways. He had that, he wow. had that in his past at certain times. But he was also a, a free marketer, and another one of the tendons, uh, tensions in, in his thinking. But you know, but um, but he, but I think he also had this sense that the United States was an indispensable nation and was sort of tasked with um, with leading the world after World War II. Many Americans thought that, that thought that way, and I think those two those things tend to end up the idealism and the, the sort of sense of mission have tended to. Uh, resolve themselves, particularly under the crushing pressure of the Cold War, which of course Wilkie never knew, but predicted in many ways. Um, Mm. uh, He predicted, I'll say that in a second, but but I think those two forces have tended to to resolve it as uh, America feeling like it needs to, especially since World War II and after the buildup of the military-industrial state, right, Right. the national security state, to to really, to lead with its power, right? Mm. yeah, that's what Wilkie did and what's so interesting. And I think, you know, often Wilkie people like him, people who have these sort of one world ideas are written off as sort of naive, right? right they just don't right. understand the complexity of the world and power politics and the need for um for balancing interests against uh against uh idealist visions, right? People often say that someone like Wilkie was there's no way that his ideas could have worked. And you know, I think that um there's a, there's a difficult path for Wilkie's ideas to work, given the the, the, the cards that they were following mm. in 1944, 45, 46, and on into the, the Cold War. But he did offer a kind of strategic vision for the post-war world 
through his writings, through One World, and that I try to lay out in this book that I think has sort of been forgotten in our stories about the way we transitioned from World War II to the Cold War. Very often we tell those stories as the emergence of a liberal kind of nationalism, Cold War vision, right? We might sum it up with Henry Luce's American Century that that essentially destroys um, another more democratic vision. Often often it is, uh, amongst academic historians, it is most often associated with Henry Wallace Mm -hmm. um, and his the Progressive Party in 1948, or some of the um, African American um, civil rights, early civil rights campaigners of that era, and that's all. That's I think that's uh, mo- that is a, a true just story about what happened. But there is in in between those two factor uh, forces, there is this other um, kind of public that was called into being by Wilkie's uh, version of liberal internationalism that divorced itself from Henry Luce and the American century ideal, although they had those forces, liberal Republicans, had been his backers, and never saw itself as quite as allied with labor as the Henry Wallace phenomenon, because Wilkie was working from the outside of the Republican Party. But he um, but he was moving to the left during those four years and trying to articulate a space where he could draw a sort of vast public around an internationalist idea that would create a, demo, a more democratic United Nations um, and try to steer a course away from confrontation with the Soviet Union, right, to try to yeah. cooperate with the Soviet yeah, Union. Um, and this is the big story of his visits with Stalin during the war. Um, and, and and so that if, if the United States and Soviet Union could cooperate, then the, the, the ground would be cleared for a more um, organized and, 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 uh, and quick uh, move away from, from empire and to force the British, the French, and the Dutch, uh, and, and the United States itself, too, to, um, to organize a more democratic and equitable world order. That was his idea, um, and, and that was his vision. And perhaps a little bit, perhaps a lot ahead of his time. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, the show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Sandy Zip, who uh, we're talking about, uh, has the one world idea time come again? We're talking about uh, Wendell Wilkie, who... Really uh, personified that and uh, wrote about it and held out this hope that I grew up with that America wouldn't have to be the colonialist. I mean, I was, you know, in the 1950s, I grew up believing uh, that America was always, of course, on the side of the anti colonialists. Um, but of course, the Cold War uh, being slapped on all these other situations, even though it didn't fit, uh, people of Vietnam thought. We would be on the side of anti-colonialists, freeing them from the French. But we were very surprised, rather sadly. And the idea of of leading more with uh, cooperation, maybe maybe now is a time, once again, to uh, to think about that. And as yeah. Wilkie argued, that ignoring global interdependence would jeopardize American independence. You said a little bit about that. Maybe you can say more about how ignoring global interdependence jeopardizes American independence. And in what way is that sort of a tricky balancing act? Yeah, I think it's difficult. It's very hard to get the get the um, get the sort of strings aligned correctly there to get the to get the the mobile up in the air. So it's, so it's right, I guess, it would be one way of thinking about metaphor. I think that you know, look, he simply thought that. Um, that America's freedom to act in the world would be jeopardized if uh, there was not a robust 
measure of interdependence, uh, a robust way of, of, excuse me, institutionalizing that interdependence because then the world would tip towards chaos and the United States would find itself alone and isolated um, in a world that that no longer, that was, where the connections were, were broken. And this was actually something that many internationalists feared in the years of during World War II because they looked at what had happened in, during the Great Depression and they worried that, that the United States, that all nations would really just sort of collapse back into um, uh, the autarkic depre- uh, depression years of the 1930s and that um, nations would, would stagnate and they wouldn't be able because of the uh, because of being isolated in a, glo- in a globalizing world, in, in a world that could be globalizing, right? They would um, they would essentially find themselves um, not able to tap into uh, the larger connections that that the world that the world um, provided, and through uh, connections of both cultural, economic, and political, mm. and that, that that countries would stagnate. And this was a sort of um, idealistic and uh, sometimes quite pragmatic mm-hmm. vision of of internationalism, of extending international ties, right, which underwrote. Uh, both the kind of free market ideals of, of free trade and a, and a global movement of goods around the world, right? Which many, which many liberals believed in and continue to believe in today mm-hmm. under the banner of neoliberalism as a kind of way to spread to spread um, prosperity everywhere. We've seen that that doesn't exactly work, uh, but that was Wilkie's idea and a bunch of other um, a bunch of other liberal idealists, right? And also, you know, this is also the idea of socialism, right? In some sense, that you need a you need a uh, a revolution everywhere to make sure that it works in one place. It has to work everywhere, essentially. Mm. Um, right. So it ha- there has to be this kind of vision. We live on a planet where um, force the forces of, of inequality, right, which is in our times in the last 150 years have been driven by, or longer have been driven by capitalism, and those forces are themselves globalist. And so you need a kind of inter- vision of the world of capitalist interdependence, and you need to counter it with with either liberal regulation in the case of, of, of Loki and Roosevelt and others like that to counter that at the global scale, or you need, um, or you need a, a, you know, the socialist, that you need a socialist revolution to transform that into a, a world of plenty for all. Um, you know, the only thing you can't do is try to build it alone. And I think that mm-hmm. that is, um, that is, that is, it's hard, right? Because I think many people, and particularly people on the right, and those who have embraced either forms of nationalism or, or some kind of, some forms of, of, of localism, which can be go break both right and left, mm-hmm. uh, believe that the best way to protect yourself against the, the, um, anarchic powers of, of, of this connectedness is to protect, to protect home, family, and community life. Um, and to, to, to rely on a form of localism. I think what we have to do is, is is think about um, ways to equal the world's complexity with our with our visions of how to build policy, how to build relations between people, and that's the interdependence that we need to grant in order to protect our independence. I think that's that's kind of what you have to do, and I and I and I think that um, Wilkie's vision of an anti-colonial world was 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 um, was headed towards trying to do that. I'd like to say something about that though, because I think it's important to remember. Yeah, I just think it's important for, for, for us as Americans to remember that the United States already was an empire in 1945 and 1940, right? It had uh, created an empire mostly in the Western Hemisphere, in the Caribbean, and in the Pacific. And that was hard for Americans to see, and hard for Wilkie to see. Yeah. I think we, we, we shielded ourselves from that. Wilkie and many other Americans believed that we were on the brink of giving up our empire. We had promised 
independence to the Philippines. Mm. We, um, you know, things like that. And, and people believe that we were an anti-colonial nation. We were the first anti-colonial nation. I mean, in fact, that right. was probably Haiti. But we had uh, thrown uh, off, uh, we had thrown off the British yoke, and we would always support that around the world. Now, that has not turned out to be the case, and was, as you say, even more so not the case after World War II with the pressures of the Cold War. But I think one the thing that we see happening during World War II, and Wilkie's a great lens for this, is that interdependence for him means figuring out how to to um, to increase the power of Americans' connections to the rest of the world while also giving up this imperial role that we had. And so what the problem with that is that, that um, not recognizing America's already physical um, mm-hmm. empire of territory that it had created disguised the fact that what the United States was creating during World War II was a new empire, a new, some people called it an informal empire, but a new global mm-hmm. empire of cultural, economic, and political and military might right yeah, around the world. Sure. But we sort of weren't able to see that emerging, although I think Wilkie was struggling to try to show us that. And now we can look back and say, all right, we're at this new moment where the Cold War is over. The war on terror is, has sort of left us in a lurch. We are, we're at the, an age of climate change, an age of pandemics, an age of thought globalization. How will the United States um, try to forge a new anti-imperial interdependent world again? And the possibilities are real. People can say, oh, that's nuts. It's so unrealistic. You know, it's, it's dreamy yeah. to talk about one world. But there's oftentimes the road not taken just happens to be the road not taken. And of course, I mean, the, the profits of the military-industrial complex would certainly have been a factor. There's no question about that. But yeah. here we yeah. are today. And, you know, how can we deal with those who who i mean as you know you know back in the 1960s john birch society was universally seen as the extremist right wing they had slogans like get the un out of the us and get the us out of the un i used to see that on bumper yeah. stickers i would suspect that among trumpists that sentiment remains really strong they have this paranoia about world government you know all these conspiracies. And I discovered recently this at Monroe County, California News had an editorial. They said, everything Barack Obama did pushed this country in the direction of a one world government. If Donald Trump had not been elected president, we might already be part of a one world government. And with each passing day, the government would control more and more of our lives until they totally controlled our lives. What would you say to people who believe that? I think this is something that I think about a lot. I think it's very fraught and very hard to, um, it's hard to, to think through what it is that would convince people who have come to believe in the perils of globalism, as they call it, the perils and the impacts of globalization, um, how to come down off of that, come down off of that um, position and embrace something more like what Wendell Wilkie and other internationalists have uh, put forward. Because part of what they have to say is exactly right. There has been a way that forms of internationalism have been yoked um, more often than not, and it includes increasing power to the forces that have created greater and greater inequality, and that have supported the emergence of a certain kind of metropolitan and more cosmopolitan elite um, 
you know, this this is this is to some extent undeniable. Right? It's it's what it's part of the rural urban divide that shapes our politics, which more often I think a metropolitan divide is an urban as an urban yes. I, I think of it in those terms. But I think that you know, um I think it's very hard to um to speak about these things rationally. I think people feel themselves to be um, in, in battle these days, um, and they see someone like Barack Obama and others like him, obviously Hillary Clinton, as representatives of a dangerous and um, uh, someone who does not have their interests at heart. I think it's wrong factually that Barack Obama actually pushed this country in the direction of a one-world government. Right. There's been almost no American. There's been almost no American you know, presidency or or. Um, any of the any of the presidencies uh, over the last few years have done much to to support American um, relations with the UN. The United States has, has largely sidelined the UN over the last twenty yes. to thirty years, um, and has made the UN. Uh, you know, most Americans see the UN as just sort of a glorified debating society, mm-hmm. and those who don't feel that it's you know don't see it as some kind of threat of war, of a world government of a kind of globalist takeover, right? And I know that fear is is is, is, is very powerful on the right. I think then that the only way to to undermine some of this is to think about how we tell stories about the connectedness of the world and the ways that, that people are connected um, to each other in ways they may not recognize and that might tend to um, tend to alleviate some of the sense of 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 of, of um, panic or worry about those connections, and then also to change the policy that um, that drives that inequality at the global scale and tries to to, to leaven, level that playing field to some extent. And over time, perhaps we can lessen some of that power. That's always going to be there because it is a persistent trope um, in the on mm-hmm. on the American right. I mean, as you say, going back to the John Birch Society in the 1960s, who was the first, I think amongst other, you know, the biggest, certainly, right-wing organization to sort of signal, single out the UN, um, picking up on the old, isolate, quote-unquote, isolationist nationalist tropes of the, of the late series, the Lindbergh, John, the, the Charles Lindbergh ideas right. about, about, about the UN, or sorry, about the United States and, and the rest of the world, right? Picking up on those and sort of supercharging them um, across the 1950s and the 60s, right? The, the, that's always going to be there at some level. And Trump and and the conditions under which we live these days in the world of global inequality are really going to are going to, to push that further and further. We can't do anything to some sense to undermine that story mm. entirely. And we can't do much right now, I think, to undermine the other part of it, which I think is um, equally powerful, which is the way that sovereignty, as you've suggested and thinking about a lot about this recently, is also connected to to forms of white supremacy, this idea yes. that um, that what, what we possess when we possess independence in this country, particularly, is a is a form of whiteness that protects us against the the, the depredations and dangers of those we see as other, right? And that is one of the, the greatest things that I think underwriting a lot of this um, a lot of this sense of of, of fear of both um, connection to the world and of the changing, obviously, demographics of our country. But it's very hard to talk about that because it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it's the same thing as me, a sort of liberal over here at Brown University, just calling everybody out there in the world racist. And that doesn't help. Right. Um, even if I have an analysis of that. Um, so we're in a tough position. And I think, um, you know, I, I've been 
I was initially quite critical of the way the Biden administration and Blinken, uh, Secretary of State Blinken, were, were, were talking about what they needed to do. But I'm wondering, you know, we'll see what happens, right? They've been pulled to the left, and we'll see how things go. And maybe we can claw some of this back and start to, 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 to keep democracy alive, as you say, Bert, right? For, to perpetuate democracy a bit more. <laughs> well, it'd be nice if we could do that. I'll tell you, we picked the name of this yeah. show before Trump got elected. Who knew? Yeah, I, yeah, right. <laughs> and I did not know until reading your article that, uh, you know, a lot of People have the impression that the United Nations, you know, is a bunch of equals. You say uh, Franklin Roosevelt's designs on the United Nations were for policemen, the U.S., the Soviets, the British, and China, power over small nations who could gather once a year or so to blow off steam. Boy. Yeah, that's the famous FDR quote. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, it, it it could be other ways. And there was a yeah. one of my favorite uh, uh, pieces of graffiti from the French May 1968 uprising was, uh, be realistic, demand the impossible. And, mm-hmm. you know, just push for it because right. you never know what is, is possible. And uh, right. it, 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 it'll be interesting to see what happens in Afghanistan, for example. That's just ahead on the horizon. Churchill called it the graveyard of empires. And, yeah. you know, there was never any way the U.S. could have an actual victory there. The people of Afghanistan will decide for themselves, as did the British against the British in the 1770s. And Jimmy Carter chose against intervention in Central America. But I, I won... I wonder. I'm I'm somewhat hopeful. I mean, I do see. Uh, I mean, it's rare that a Democratic candidate runs to the center and then governs from the left. It's usually the other way around. But I, I think there might be some wiggle room with Blinken and uh, Biden for them to accept that maybe America doesn't have to project this image that we are the policemen of the world and that we have to rule the world, and that it could be beneficial for our interest to do so. And I wonder if this is a time, you write that Wilkie's warnings about the perils of racial nationalism have never been more indispensable than they are now, and his diagnosis of the pressing demands of global independence has never been more prescient. And you also say the fact and the feeling that we are all independent remains at the heart of today's most pressing movements for racial, economic, and climate justice. They are at the heart. I will ask the question you raise. What will it take this time to revive the spirit of a non-provincial America? Well, it's the, it's the great, great million-dollar question. I, I feel like we are, we're at a moment where we're going to see how, how this breaks uh, again, just as Wilkie did, did during World War II, just as he was asking us to see. You know, I think interdependence is more and more. I believe it's the great it's the great question of our time in so many different ways. We need to see interdependence as the fulcrum around which our fates turn, both here in the United States. We have to see that we are actually all related to one another under the as Americans, and that we need to figure out a way to redistribute um, some of the prosperity of Americans to to, um, to those that have had it withheld from them on the long-term scale to people of color and African-Americans, yes. but on the short-term scale, on the recent history of neoliberalism to those who's, um, who's, who have geographically been uh, sequestered from, from prosperity, right? People mm. in rural parts of the country, as well mm-hmm, as, as mm-hmm. those who live in, in, in the, in the uh, 
in the cities. Troubled parts of our cities, right? I mean, I think that's that's where we are in the in the national frame, and I think in the international frame, we need we need to again to to figure out how to convince Americans and other people around the world to to step back from intense forms of nationalism and to to renew their investment or their faith in the forms of multi multilateral interdependent um, connection that the United Nations has tried to offer us. I think we see more hope for that in other parts of the country. Um, there are some surveys recently that have suggested that people have faith in the idea of the United Nations at a time when, mm, mm-hmm. when national governments are feeling um, perhaps less powerful. Um, I think what we need to see ways that we um, begin to, you know, I, I think we need to find a new interde- uh, a new form of interdependence at the international, um, at the international scale to replace global capital and, and global finance, which have mm. been the, the, the governing and most powerful forces of the last 30 to 50 years. Um, and they have run their course, I think. Um, obviously, they're always going to be players, but we need to find a way to... Um, to reinvest in other modes of thinking relationally. I think it's going to be very difficult. Yes. I think we are not at a time where um, many people have, particularly in the United States and in other parts of the globe, where, where forms of racial nationalism, China in particular, mm. um, places in, in the Middle East, um, obviously Israel, obviously uh, parts of, say, a, a country like Turkey right now, mm-hmm. uh, places like Hungary, um, other mm-hmm. parts of Europe, right, where 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 internationalism or a sense of interdependence with people around the world is hard pressed because yeah. of forms of austerity or economic inequality or the the, the pressures that that the you know, the racism that gets inflamed that's always there but gets inflamed by the forms of um, pressure that are put on it by 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 the by um yeah. by at this point by by climate change and by the pandemic that are creating uh, refugee crises so. I think that, you know, these these things are going to make it hard. I, I don't know that I have the answer. As a historian, I usually like to, to set the terms of the dilemmas that we face, as I've said here today. But um, I think it's going to take, um, you know, some joke, right, that it will take an invasion from bombs, right? Because that's the only way we're all going to see ourselves as Earth people. Um, and that's a, <laughs> that's a sort of cynical answer to that question, right? But that is the... Uh, that's so just moving the scale outward even further, right? That would the, work. The arrival of, yeah, the arrival of it's the sort of war of the worlds, right? Again, right. Just to pick another, pick another um, cultural icon from the 1930s and 40s, right? <laughs> Alongside the Wilkie. Oh yeah. my goodness, so. that would that would work. That would unite us, and uh, you yeah. know the the possibilities are there. This is a time of change. A lot of people on the left uh, tend to be, well, if it can't happen right now, forget it. It takes a lot of work. Here we are talking about Wendell Wilkie. His ideas are moving forward from 80 years ago. Very interesting stuff. And it's always good to, as somebody said, to think with history. We don't do that nearly often enough. Our our guest today has been uh, Sandy Zip. His book is The Idealist, Wendell Wilkie's Wartime Quest to Build One World. And maybe that time has come again. It takes a lot of work, but maybe we can do it. Thanks so much for being with us. Very interesting. Thank you so much.